We're going through the Bible in five years period of time. And so what we do is we read the Word of God together six days a week. And in doing so, our sermon, what we're doing today, is actually based in whole or in part on the passages of Scripture that we've read together. And this past week, we read Genesis chapter 24 through chapter 26. We're looking at the life of Isaac. And uh, my sermon today is entitled, Like Father, Like Son. If you are like me, we want our children to grow up and have the traits that we have. And I can honestly say that after many years of worrying and hoping that I built up the traits that would serve my children well as they are growing into the young adult years, every single one of them are Clemson fans. And it was a hard process. Kathleen fought it the most, I think, but, um, you know, now they're, they're tried and true Clemson fans, and I'm very thankful for that. I have a picture. If you look on my Facebook page, the banner on my picture is all of us decked out in our Clemson gear after they won the national championship in 2018. That's a very fond memory for me and my family. Bought all the gear and had a lot of happiness for that. And I know some of you are the same way because we have the Dickmans who, who usually are on this front row, and when it's football season, they're all decked out in their Denver Bronco gear, aren't they? And then uh, what's so funny is we had earlier this year, Sam and Lisa sent me a text because Cole had picked out the colors that he wanted for his room, and they were Seahawk uh, green and blue, and they wanted to send that to me just so that I would know that that's what they chose. All of us trying our best to show that we are raising our children right. Of our family oftentimes show up in our children. Sometimes in fun ways like we're talking about with our favorite teams and the like. And sometimes in meaningful ways, both good and bad. And I think we see that when we look at the life of Isaac. Because when we look at the life of Isaac, we see a reflection of Abraham. In the life of Isaac. And we're going to be in a lot of the places this past week that we've read in the scriptures. And we're going to start, believe it or not, with the worst. My dad was a type of person who said, always do the worst thing first. Okay? Because then it only gets better from there. It's actually a piece of advice that has served me well. So I always look at what I hate to do first, and I choose to do that. Okay? Because I know that if I can get that done... It's only going to get better from there. It's a great piece of advice that my dad gave me as growing up. So we're going to do the faults that we see in the life of Isaac first because it's the worst. It's the hardest. And it's going to hit us pretty hard because I think when we think of faults that we pass on to our kids, it's the thing that we don't want to pass on to our children. We don't want them to make the same mistakes that we did. We don't want them to do the things that we grew up doing that caused so much pain and devastation, maybe even in our own lives. Can you avoid this? And we try to teach them the best that we can, but sometimes the example that we give only reinforces that bad thing. Let's just be honest about that. And so we're going to look at a few of these faults that Abraham had that he passed on to Isaac, and we're going to look at it through the eyes of Isaac first, and then going back and seeing where he got it from. 
First one is this account with Abimelech. I don't know what it is about the name Abimelech. Every single time I hear it, I have this song going on in my head. Abimelech, 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 Abimelech. Ah. See, you guys have got to have it in your head the rest of the day, okay? Now, now you have got that there. Next time you hear that song, I want you thinking of Abimelech. All right, so if we turn to Genesis chapter 26... And let's take a look at the account of Isaac and Abimelech, how it all starts with them. Now there was a famine in the land besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and I will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and I will give them all these lands and through your offspring all nations on the earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees, and my laws. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Because he was afraid to say she is my wife, he thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she is beautiful. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from the window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she is really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? Isaac answered him, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, what is this that you've done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, anyone who molests this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So the first thing that we see in in this idea of faults is that when push comes to shove, Isaac going into another land, staying there with the Philistines at the time, worried about his status and what's going to happen to him there, tells his wife, Rebecca, say, you're my sister. Where did he get such a stupid idea? It was from his dad. Not only did we see Abraham do this once, he actually did it twice. He did it once at the end of chapter uh, 12 when he first gets to the land of Canaan, there becomes a famine. And so he goes down to Egypt. That's why there's this reference in Genesis 26. And unlike that, God tells Isaac, don't go down to Egypt. So he doesn't. He stays in the land. I wonder if in the back of, I mean, in the back of God's mind, what a weird way of putting things. But I wonder... If God's reasoning for saying don't go down to Egypt is so that Isaac would not be tempted to do the same thing that Abraham did, which was pass off his wife as his sister. But Abraham didn't do it just once. He did it twice. You want to know the irony of the second time? It was with Abimelech. Going back a couple of chapters in Genesis chapter 20, Starting 
starting in verse 1. It says, Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And for a while he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You're as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't he, she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. And God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. And so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all of yours will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all of his officials. And when they told him all that had happened, they were very much afraid. And then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should not be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, There's surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God had me wander through my father's household, uh, wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. So we see that this is a pattern that he had set up, not just in these two places, but it says, everywhere we went, say this, that you are here to protect me. Now notice, this is not necessarily a faith. He never asked God if this is what he wants him to do. He just does this because he's afraid, because he's pushed up against it. He has pressure in his life, and that pressure has him in a place of compromise, And so he's willing to put his wife on the line and say, this is what you can do for me when I go to these places because I don't want to be killed. Remember, God has told him, I'm going to take you to this place. I'm going to establish your descendants. I'm going to do all this. They haven't had their children yet in either of these circumstances. It's really a matter of faith. Is God going to do what he wants to do? He's still in that mode of not fully trusting God with what's going on. And the problem is you and I have those same besetting sins. It may not be this. I've never really gone out and said, hey, this is really my sister to my wife. I pray none of you have either. But we have things that when push comes to shove, we run back to. Old tendencies, things that you and I do. Maybe we are easy at lying about things. Maybe to keep the peace, we just won't tell the truth. Maybe, you know... When push comes to shove, we get angry, and it works itself out in other ways. Maybe we yell, scream, berate. When you and I are pushed to that limit where we do not trust in God in those things, it shows when it comes out in our life, we actually kind of bring that to the forefront for our children to see. Where did Isaac learn that this was acceptable behavior? Because here's the irony. Isaac isn't born in any of these instances. 
The one in Egypt, he's not alive. The one with Abimelech, here, he's still not alive. He's promised, but he's not there yet. The only way Isaac would have learned of this way of dealing with going into another country would have been from his father's example, his father's advice. He heard the stories of how God used that, or I would rather say that God allowed that to happen, and he saved him in spite of himself. And he passed it on to Isaac. So there's a famine in the land. Don't go down to Egypt. Stay here in this land. Oh, but there are people here, and there's a powerful king who is here. And I don't know how he's going to treat my wife or how the men in this country are going to treat my wife. So I'm going to do what dad has told me to do, and I'm going to say that she is my sister. And Abimelech is revealed again that through the actions of Isaac that she's really your wife. And he says, why have you done this? One of these men could have slept with her. You realize how bad that is? He was willing to give up his wife for his safety because he was worried about what might happen to him. And when you and I get pushed in that direction, what comes out sometimes is not of God. And our children see it. And they're going to emulate it. It's going to find its way into their life as well. I fear for those besetting sins in my life because I want to continually put them to death so that my children will see Jesus in me and not these things. But I'm not a perfect parent, and I guarantee you none of you are either. So I know my children have seen some of my tendencies that are not of God and the things that I struggle with that I pray will not be there heritage and you have those fears too whatever it might be anger, language gambling drinking, alcohol pornography sexual addiction, you name it whatever it is that God saved you from in those times where the pressure gets too much, you can run back to those things again And they cause damage. They're seen. And we perpetuate that, which we wish would just go away. It's important to recognize how serious our besetting sins are, not just to us, but for the next generation. And that's not the only fault that he had, it's another fault. We find it at the birth and the growing up of his sons. Chapter 25, starting in verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer. And his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. And the babies jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. 
And when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her room, and the first came out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. And after this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. We see this sin of favoritism. This isn't just a matter of, I get along with this child better than this child. It's Isaac loved Esau. Rebecca loved Jacob. As a matter of fact, as we continue in our reading, we, we see the familiar story of how that brings consternation between these brothers one to another because the mom and dad have differing views on which is the favorite child. Where did this idea of favoritism come from? Well, if we go back to Genesis, we go to 16, where Abraham and Sarah have concocted this plan that they want to help God along. And so in order to help God along and make sure that we get the promised child that God said that we should get, why don't you take my handmaiden as your wife, as your concubine? You can have children through her. It's consensual, right? Everything's fine. No problem whatsoever. And so Hagar gets pregnant by Abraham. And then the strife begins. Because Hagar knows that she's pregnant. There's, there's this I'm pregnant and you're not, Sarah. And Sarah begins to mistreat Hagar. And Hagar runs away. And before being told back to submit to her mistress, the angel of the Lord appears to her. Verse 11 in chapter 16 says this, The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child and you will have a son. And you shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all of his brothers. You know, not every prophecy is a welcome prophecy. But this is what happened. And so she goes and she submits herself to Sarah again. And things, I guess, calm down for about 13 years. And then Isaac is born. And it says when Isaac is weaned, something different happens in this family relationship that's already more complex than it ought to be. We look in chapter 21 of Genesis, starting in verse 8, and it says this. The child grew and was weaned, talking about Isaac. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. 
Listen to whatever Sarah tells you because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also because he is your offspring. Now, just because God allowed this to happen does not mean that this is in the middle of all of his perfect will. His perfect will was that Abraham was going to have a son. That son's going to be Isaac. They jumped the gun on that. And so all of these things are now turmoil, mitigation, if you will. And Sarah is like, nope, send her away. And Abraham's distressed, and rightfully so, because this has to do with his son, Ishmael. He has to show favoritism to Isaac because he's the promised one of God. And he has to defer to his wife because she is the one he's pledged himself to first. And he sends away Hagar and Ishmael. But it's not the only time that we see him doing that. As a matter of fact, in the reading that we had done this week, in chapter 25, toward the end of Abraham's life, take a look at what happens here. Starting in verse 1, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Joxan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shuha. Joxan was the father of Sheba and Dedan, and the descendants of Dedan were the Asherites and the Letrites. Letusites and the Lemuites. The sons of Midian were Ephath, Epher, Hanok, Abida, and Elda. All of these were descendants of Keturah. Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac, but while he was still living, he gave, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. You notice what happened here? There's no admonition from God that he should do this, like with Sarah. This is him because he's done this before, and God was okay with it. Therefore, I'm going to do this again with these children right here. And it sets up this idea that Isaac is the favored son. He's going to have all of the blessing that God has promised because that's the promise of God. But all of these other children, as a result of that, are sent away. And whether we're talking Ishmael or the sons uh, and daughters of Keturah, they are left fatherless. What do you think that does to the relationship between the offspring of Isaac and the offspring of Ishmael and Keturah? They're going to live in hostility one to another. You're the favored son. Nobody wants to be around you. Where did Isaac get this understanding of favoritism? He'd seen it all of his life household over and over and over again. Ishmael is there, but he's not as good as me. Keturah's sons are there, but they're not as good as me, so they're going to be sent off without a father. And what do you think will happen to those children? We know what's happening to Ishmael. He's going to live in hostility to all of his brothers, to all of his descendants. 
We see this as a generational thing that goes beyond just Isaac and Ishmael and whether they get along. It's about their kids and their kids' kids that go down the, this is how this all started. And we see it built up in Isaac just as much as it was in Abraham. The idea of fatherlessness in America today isn't talked about a whole lot or the effects of it. God established the family to have a father and mother because there are consequences to breaking a covenant in which God has established. We want stability in our nation. We want stability in our own families. Then we have to take seriously the covenant of marriage that God has put forth. But our society has not put a very big premium on marriage. And as a result, we're seeing some of the results and the consequences of us being so liberal concerning the sanctity of marriage. I want to read some statistics to you. It's a long and lengthy article. I'm going to read a good portion of it, but I think it's important for you guys to hear. Because we're told lies by our culture today. Our kids will just bounce back. There's nothing wrong. It's better for us if we do things this way. And this isn't to cast any derision on any who have walked through the painfulness of the reality of divorce. I come from a divorced family. I've lived it. But it doesn't make this any less true. It's called... The article is called Fatherlessness and its Effects on American Society. The effects of broken family have been Staggering. Across America, there are approximately 18.3 million children who live without a father in the home, comprising of about one in four U.S. children. The United States has the highest rate of children living in single-parent households of any nation in the world. About 80% of single-parent homes are led by single mothers. At a rate of 23% of children living with one parent and no other adults, the United States stands over three times the world average of 7% of children raised by one parent. For reference, the number stands at 3% for China and 4% for India. Of all births in the U.S. today, about 41% of children are born to unwed mothers. For women under the age of 30, the demographic that bears two-thirds of the women uh, of two-thirds of the children in general, out of wedlock weight rate increases to 53%. While many unmarried women cohabitate with a partner at the time of giving birth, these relationships fail at twice the rate of marriages. Data suggests the more kids are likely growing up with the television in their bedroom than with both biological parents in the home. Even for children with a father present in the home, the average school-age boy only spends about 30 minutes per week in in one-on-one conversations with his father. Children from fatherless homes are far worse in metrics of overall well-being and mental health and behavioral health. 
These children are often burdened with lower self-esteem than other children. They do not understand why their father abandoned them. This leads to a number of emotional problems like anxiety, social withdrawal, and depression. And it also leads to an increased risk of suicide and other forms of self-harm. Overall, children from one single-parent families are twice as likely to suffer from mental health problems as those living with married parents. Research also suggests that high-risk children in single-parents' homes have nearly five times greater a chance of developing mood disorders than those in dual-parent households, even when controlling for household income, age, and the depression status of parents. This research suggests that fatherlessness is a significant trick contributor to mental health issues in children. In light of these studies, it's no surprise that 90% of all homeless and runaway children, 63% of teen suicides, and 85% of children and teens with behavioral, behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. Similarly, fatherless families are 25% more likely to raise children in poverty. Children without fathers are also 10 times more likely to abuse chemical substances, and 71% of all children who abuse substances come from fatherless homes. Unsurprisingly, those without a father in the home bear far worse in educational achievement than their two-parent counterparts. Fatherless children are twice as likely to drop out of high school than children with both parents at home. The fatherless are also 40% more likely to repeat a class and 70% more likely to drop out of school. Fatherlessness likewise has a direct link to teen pregnancy and sexual activity. Roughly 70% of teenage pregnancies come from women raised in fatherless homes. And these same women have significantly higher abortion rates than women raised with both a father and a mother. Criminal activity of fatherlessness and fatherlessness are closely related as well. Of all the use in state-operated institutions, roughly 70% come from fatherless homes. And 85% of all youths in prison come from fatherless homes. On the whole, fatherless kids are 20 times more likely to be incarcerated and 11 times more likely to exhibit violent behavior than children from two-parent households. So when we look at what Abraham did with Ishmael, when we look at what he did with Keturah and the kids that were there, they'll be all right. They're going to become a nation. They're going to be blessed of God. And yet... They bear the consequences of the actions that Abraham set forth. There's one thing I could tell you. Fathers, love your wives. As Christ loved the church. Raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Those are those are statistics. They represent people. And when we cast off the word of God for mere statistics and not see them as people, we reap a whirlwind that God never intended 
for us to walk through. These are the faults. They're not small. They're not insignificant. They were passed down. They have real effect in a real world to that next generation that we want to be better than we want to be. We don't want them walking through the same problems that we walked through. They cause pain. I don't want my faults mirrored in my kids. I don't. I really don't. And the only hope that I have that they might avoid that same fate is the same hope that Abraham had. That he passed on to his son Isaac and that is an honoring of a God who erases our sins. And so we move from these weaknesses. They're weaknesses. We have to understand them. They're faults. They are dangerous. To the redemptive strengths covered by the grace of God. The strength of Abraham's life is that he honored God. Imperfect as he was, he honored God. First thing that he did is he married within the faith. He and Sarah both came together under the calling of God into the land of Canaan, the land that that God was going to show them. And he wanted the same for his son so that when his mother had died and Sarah is buried, he sends off back to the same land where they had the honor of God in that place and they didn't do it in that section of the world in which they were now moved to. You know why? Because he's lived among them for 25 years and longer. It's actually a lot longer. He's probably 100, let's see, 137. So we're talking 60 some odd years he's been in the land. And being in the land for 60 years, guess what he knows? The saying of godly people in general. Yeah, I can point to Melchizedek, who is priest of most high God. And I can point to Abimelech as somebody at least shows the fear of God. But in general, this place knows nothing of God. Do I want to grab somebody for my son from this place where there's no fear of God? I would rather go back to my people where there's a fear of the Lord and bring somebody from there. And so the entire chapter of 24 in Genesis is this love story that's begun by Abraham passing on to his son a faithful wife who honors God. Best thing you can do. Any single people in here? You don't have to raise your hand. Love for the Lord, number one thing you should be looking for in a potential spouse. If they don't love Jesus, they should be off your list, period, done, nada. It's one thing that Abraham does well. I want to set up a good foundation for my son. I want him to know that Having a faithful wife, that's huge. And keeping your own faith strong in Jesus Christ. It's not the only thing he did. 
we see in Isaac's life that he obeys the voice of God when God speaks to him. Going back to chapter 26, looking at verses 2 through 6, it says, The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt to live in the land where I tell you to live. Where I tell you, do not go down, live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you, and I will bless you for, you, for to you and your descendants I will give all these lands, and will confirm an oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give them all these lands, and through your offspring all nations on the earth will be blessed, because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees, and my laws, so Isaac stayed in Jerusalem. God appeared to him and said, I want you to stay here. And he listened to his voice. God appears to Abraham and says, I want you to go to the land that I'm going to take you to. And he gets up and he takes everything that he has and he goes. He's been taught to obey the Lord. I mean, if you think about it, one of Isaac's greatest lessons or Abraham's greatest lessons had to do with Isaac. We're going to go and worship God because that morning Abraham was told by the angel of the Lord, I want you to go up and sacrifice your only son, your only son, the son of promise, Isaac, who is here. You sacrifice him to me. Gets up in the morning. Come on, boy, let's go. Probably didn't say it quite like that. Servants come along the way. Um. You guys stay here. I'm going to go up there, worship with the boy, and we're going to come back. By the way, that's the text that's right there. We're going to worship. We're coming back. He knows what he's going to do. But he finally has the confidence that God is going to redeem whatever it is that he does because he doesn't break his promise. Isaac was a part of that lesson because he was the one bound and tied upon the altar. It's not just Abraham who sees the angel from heaven saying, whoa, whoa, now I know that you fear God. It's Isaac who is a witness to this as well, who knows that God has provided a sacrifice in his place. He sees it. And he recognized the type of faith that his father had, imperfect as he was, and realizes when God says something, I need to go and do it. And finally, we see that Isaac worships God in the same way that Abraham did. Down in verse 23 in That same chapter, it says, From there he went up to Beersheba, and that night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. And Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. And there he pitched his tent, and there his servants dug a well. See, when we see altars being built in the Old Testament, they're not just altars in which they, they have this place where they've built this up and they offer some sort of sacrifice to God, which oftentimes they do. They're a memorial, a reminder that when I go to this place and I see those rocks that are built up that way, this is what happened there. It's why we take pictures today, right? 
We take pictures at places that we go to try and remember certain things that have happened. So I take a picture. Why? Because I want to remember what's happened here. I don't want to forget. We take a video of what's happened there. We do something so we'll remember. Or we'll buy a souvenir or get a memento. Why? Because there's something that happened there that I want to remember. For Isaac, it was, I met the Lord there. In the same way my father met the Lord, I met the Lord there. And I'm not going to forget this. I'm going to build this altar. So I'm reminded of the faithfulness I'm supposed to have to the God who has promised blessing through me and through my descendants forever. You know, we have more influence than we realize. Parents, we have more influence than we realize. Workers, we have more influence than we realize. Friends, we have more influence than we realize. People are looking at you and at me and how we live our lives before God. It's the picture of God we pass on to other people for good or for ill. And some of you may be right now feeling overwhelmed. I quote a lot of statistics. We live in a very broken culture. I was raised by a single dad. I've, I've walked it myself. Many of you might find yourselves in that single parent position as well. And wondering, what have I got set up for my sons, for my daughters to look at through me? And I have good news for you. Sincerely, good news. God is a cycle breaker. God is a cycle breaker. Those things that we see built up within our generations, we are blessed because of Christ's sacrifice not to have to walk in them any longer. That should be good news for you. And good news for your children. Just a reminder of what we read last week in Exodus chapter 20. Verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath. Or in the waters below you shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I the Lord your God am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing love. To a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So I was raised in a single parent house. I was raised in a household that did not talk about Jesus at all. We didn't have anything to do with God in our household. Every marker that should say that I have no business being up here is in my life. And yet... I stand before you today as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, changed by the grace of God, because I came to know Jesus between 19 and 20 years old, partially because that wonderful woman sitting right there, and my grandmother, who two two generations before was faithful to Jesus, and it passed down to me. 
And I've been tempted to revisit the sins of my father, who knows Jesus, praise God. I've been tempted to have that same type of legacy in my own household that would provide an instability, which is all I'd ever known. Except for the Jesus who saved me, who allowed me to put him first in my life, allowed me to break that cycle of things. And I'm happily married after 28 years. I have three awesome children who have had the privilege to talk about Jesus and the Lord and putting him first and done my best to try and create a generational blessing that will see them and their children now that I'm a grandfather. I'm still not used to that, guys. And wanting to see in him growing up that same faith of faithfulness. And my secret is this. I have vowed to honor God in all of my life and all that I do. I'm telling you, it changes things. It changes the direction of wherever you find yourself right now. Because I read those statistics. I should have been one of those statistics. By the grace of God, I'm not. And you might find yourself in the midst of being one of those statistics. And by the grace of God, you can be transformed. Because the one thing Abraham did do well is he honored God above everything else. And though he did it imperfectly, he passed that on to Isaac. And his faults have real consequences, but his faith can overcome them. That's a faith you guys can have in Christ. That you can pass down to that next generation. It's the good part of what we look with Abraham and Isaac. And the heritage that's being created, though imperfect. But we have to be aware. We can't be flippant. Jesus may cover all of our sins, but it doesn't mean our sins don't still have terrible consequences if we choose to walk in them. It's important that the faith that we pass down to our kids, if we want them avoiding the same problems that you and I have had, means that we have to take our faith in Jesus Christ so seriously that he is always first. Comparing all things back to the word of God, that our life might be conformed and transformed by the power of Christ. Would you stand with me? whether you feel like you're in the middle of the cycle of generational sin or you're trying to establish a blessing, there's hope for you in Jesus Christ. He is the cycle breaker. He really, really is. And my encouragement for you today is that if you have found yourself drifting away from honoring God and all that you say and do, that you would come back. That if you've never given regard to God, And the decisions that you make being different than the world around you, thinking that it doesn't make that much of a difference. I pray that today would make a difference in your life because you give it to Christ and he transforms things the way way that only he can. You can walk out of here with hope.
Not necessarily without struggle, without consequences, but with hope that the one who can cover those sins can redeem your situation. Would you come today, if that's you, needing prayer for any reason, and ask our elders to come on forward? Be up here ready to receive any who need prayer. And elders, same with you. Same with me. We're not above anybody else that we're praying for. If it's you who needs prayer, then I encourage you, even as elders, to stay forward. Have us pray with one another. Nobody here is claiming to be perfect. Heaven knows I know my faults. I just pray I don't pass them down to my kids. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you, dear Heavenly Father, as we take an honest look of what it means to be an example to our children, an example to those around us, the incredible responsibility of honoring you above all else, and that when we don't, we don't realize the destruction we actually bring into our lives. I pray, oh God, the Redeemer of our souls, through Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, I pray any today who have wandered down that path can come today be forgiven, be washed anew, dear Heavenly Father, be given hope that you can, even in the midst of this imperfect situation, redeem that which has gone astray. We hold true to the promise of Christ that says you work all things to the good of those who love them, who've been called according to your purpose. So we ask, oh God, this day that we would love you and love you well. And put you above everything else so that our children, our wives, that our friends, our co-workers, everybody around us would see one thing about us is that we honor God above everything else. That you would be glorified. And through your glorification that you would draw all men to yourself and transform them by the power of Christ and your Holy Spirit. Do that for us today, dear Heavenly Father. Give us a new start and help us to see your glory, to establish the blessing of thousands of generations, to be faithful to you, to put you first in all things. May it start with us here, now, in this place, in Jesus' name. Amen.